it's nice to be back. Um, you're really welcome here tonight. It's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. I'm David Todd. I'm, uh, I'm the pastor here of Church at the Barony. I'm a pastor at St John's Church in Nunlithgow. And I was just praying um, there as, as we were being led in worship by Brian and Sally. And thank you for that. And I just sense God asking me to, to tell you just a little bit about you know, what we're about here and, and why we're doing this. And it comes down to kind of two things, I think, that we want to do here when we meet together as Church at the Barony. It's to worship, it's to praise God, to declare who he is, his greatness, his worth, to proclaim his name, to magnify him, that the songs of praise that we sing would draw others into his presence and would reveal the greatness of God. And the other thing I think that, that we want to do when we meet here is not listen to me preach. That doesn't mean you can go or anything or fall asleep, although I'll be honest, if I was there, I probably would be falling asleep. Um, we meet together to hear from God together and to discern what he's saying to us. Now, Church at the Barony is a very informal church. You are welcome to stand up, sit down, dance, sing, wave your hand. Not while I'm speaking. Um, but just you know, at, at appropriate points in the service, uh, there is very little formality here. Nobody has to stand on ceremony. Part of the, what we want to do is we want to encourage people to hear from God. We want to encourage people to come and to bring words or pictures or maybe it's bits of scripture or bits of hymns that God has just popped into their head. We want to encourage people to come and share the things that they feel or sense God might be saying to them. So we want to discern and we want to hear from God together. Now a big part of that, to be honest, is this bit. It's the preachy bit. Because anybody who's preaching here ought to be listening to what God is saying and that ought to be for the benefit of the whole church. So that's a kind of big formal bit of that. But in essence, it's the same thing. If somebody comes up to myself or to one of the other leaders and says, David, I want to just share something. So, oh, what is it you want to share? Well, I sense God saying this to me. Well, get up and tell the people. And that's just as important as me standing up here preaching a sermon to you. So that's what we're about here. We're about praise and worship. And we're about hearing from God together. Those are the kind of two staple things that we do when we meet here together. So that enables us to do other things. That enables us to show kindness to other people. That enables us because we understand who Jesus is, because we get to know God more intimately, and he has his way in our life, and it changes our life because we know we are loved by him, and then we want to do good things, kind works for people. But it also enables us to tell others about Jesus. So it empowers us to be evangelists, to take the message of the gospel out to friends, family, neighbours and community in this town. But it's gathering here that empowers us to do those things. It's gathering together in praise and worship, gathering together to hear from God that enables us to be out there in the community bringing good news to the folks who we live alongside. Does that make sense? Good, thank goodness. I just felt that, I know for most of you, that's old time. Most of you understand entirely what we do here, but I just sensed God saying I needed just to, to clarify that and to put a kind of foundation down for tonight. So welcome, welcome to the Barony, welcome to Church at the Barony. 
and to the third in our series on the fruit of the Spirit. The last couple of weeks I've been away on holiday uh, and I left it in the, the absolutely capable hands of, of the, the core leadership team here and Mel two weeks ago and Chris last week did a fantastic job in introducing this new teaching series, uh, opening up the scriptures for us and it was great. I had a listen to both those sermons, they are available across all good podcast streaming uh, websites and platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, search for church at the little ampersand sign, church at the barony. Um, and you'll find some other, other sermons here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, that's all just by way of introducing what I want to talk about tonight. Because the fruit of the Spirit is simply what we can expect our lives to look like and taste like when we're following Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is just that. It is the flavour of your life. Galatians 5 and verse 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So tonight I'm going to be speaking about peace. Next week we have forbearance. I don't even know what that is. Forbearance. I think that might be patience. Yeah. I think other translations would have patience that would be much easier to understand. So um, I'm not even sure who's preaching next week, but they're preaching on forbearance. Somebody's down to preach this. It's not me. Um, <coughs> Hillary. Excellent. Your daughter-in-law. Splendid. So Hillary next week's preaching on forbearance or patience. Um, so those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That sounds a bit severe to me. That phrase, crucified the flesh. It's a bit of a harsh kind of turn of phrase. And it simply means that when you make a decision to follow Jesus, you belong to him. Your life changes. It means that you can and you should expect your life and your attitudes and your values to change, to become more aligned to the attitude and values of Jesus. Now I feel the need tonight to make a confession before you. This will shock some of you. That's kind of like a clickbait title. The pastor confesses to church what he says will shock you! Exclamation mark. I became a Christian when I was 19, but from the age of about 15, I'd been involved in politics, kind of local politics stuff. I joined the local association and I did some campaigning in the general election of 1987. That's a long time ago, but I did. I was 15 going on 16 at the time. Uh, I put up posters, I put up those signs that you get on lampposts at elections and at no other time in your life. I did all that. I did fundraising, I went to dinners, I met genuinely prominent politicians and ministers. I even shook hands with the Prime Minister once at a rally in Perth. Some of you will have worked this out, what the confession is already. Yes. I was a Tory. I was a young Conservative. I wasn't officially a young Conservative because there was no 
Young Conservative Association. Frankly, there weren't enough of us to form any kind of Young Conservative Association. So I was just a, I was just a member, I was just a full member of the association. And the truth is that back then, I believed in them and their policies. In my defence, I was young. I was very young and I was naive and I knew nothing of the real world. But I thought that what I was doing, saying, telling people what I was thinking, I thought that was right. And I'll be honest, it was pretty out there. I was knocking on doors around West Lothian in the run-up to that election in 1987. I was wearing a big blue rosette and I was asking people if they'd like to meet their local Conservative candidate, whose name was Mr Armstrong Jones. I kid you not. Double-barreled name. This was in places, remember this is 1987, this is just out the back of the minor strike. It's at the height of the poll tax, when Scotland had the poll tax and England didn't. If you remember the political atmosphere in Scotland at the time? And I knocked on doors, I swear, in places like Faldhouse and Blackridge. Thatcher's policies in those old mining towns in the late 80s were not popular. I had never heard such language. You came from leaf, David. Told where to... <laughs> hyperbole, Richard. Told where to put my leaflets. And then, and then a couple of years later, a few years after that, I became a Christian. When I was 19, I became a Christian. And I began to see things differently. There was a very particular thing that was like a revelation for me. There was one thing, one incident that, that, that really was the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. One thing that I saw and understood and saw with new eyes and new understanding that made me rethink my attitudes there. It was the early 90s and they had just built, if you remember, the Golden Jubilee Hospital in Clyde Bank. It was a state-of-the-art private hospital at the time trying to market health services uh, and private operations to very wealthy Arabs and Americans. It's an NHS hospital now and it's doing a great job, but it was privately built and owned and run in those days. They had received government grants when that was built, millions of pounds invested in that hospital and incentives and in tax incentives and so on. And at the same time that was happening, the sick kids in Edinburgh was trying to raise £1 million for a new wing. And they were fundraising that through charity. If you remember, you might remember those wee badges you could get with a wee kid in pyjamas. They were trying to raise a million pounds for a new wing. And it just struck me that that was wholly iniquitous, unfair, that it was immoral, that the sick kids would be raising money through charity and this private hospital aimed at very wealthy foreigners, nothing wrong with foreigners, but it's just that, that the whole ethos of that, getting millions of pounds in grants and tax cuts, that it should aid the funding of an exclusive private hospital while leaving the public to raise money, far smaller amount of money for the sick kids in Edinburgh. And that was the thing that turned me away from the Conservative Party, the revelation that much of what they were doing was unfair. It was not for the benefit of the poorest. It was not for the benefit of the most vulnerable. So for me, following Jesus resulted in a change of attitude, a change of values. Following Jesus changes the way you see the world. It changes the way your life looks 
and tastes. Following Jesus means putting yourself, your own interests aside, crucifying the flesh, as Paul puts it, (coughs) displaying new values from the work of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So tonight I'm focusing on peace. I love peace. I was brought up with a phrase that echoed around our house when I was a wee boy that my mother would say on a regular basis, probably hourly at least, she would say, Geese peace! (laughs) Chase me out of the room. I love the idea of peace, the idea of calm, the idea of rightness, of quiet, that kind of quiet assuredness inside. Despite the fact that I live in a house with three boys, or two of them are mostly away now, but but, uh, we've raised three boys at home, and and you would tend to think then that our house would be quite noisy, um, because boys just break stuff. Uh, But it's such, it's not been, my, my home is a very peaceful place, it's the calming influence of my wife, but it's a very peaceful place, and I, I love that about my life, and I love that peace is central, is absolutely central to the gospel of Jesus Christ, where there was enmity with God, now there is peace, and I love that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, he was given that title by Isaiah 700 years before he was born, that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And one of my favourite words is shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word, which is usually translated peace, but it means so much more than that. Shalom is a healing, reconciling peace. It's a peace that brings wholeness and wellness. I think of shalom, the definition of shalom as being uh, that which puts back together that which is broken. It's actually a a kind of medical word. It has that that kind of connotation to it. Shalom is about a healing, putting back together, restoring peace. You see, peace isn't just the absence of conflict. We often think of it that way. That there are peace accords and peace deals. We hear about those things in the news. They refer to a cessation of violence. That's not shalom. That's not the kind of peace that we're talking about here. It's not the kind of peace that comes from Jesus. Jesus made that very clear when he said in John 14, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. Jesus' peace is not like the world's peace. It's not simply an end to threat and violence. Often we hear about a peace coming into a a, a place of of war or of violence. And it's almost like a veneer. You know that maybe the violence has stopped. Maybe the ceasefire has come. But you know under the surface, all of those tensions, all of that resentment remains. And it's almost like it could be brewing or festering away underneath. Just waiting for another opportunity to come to the surface again. That's not the kind of peace that Jesus offers. It's a deeply felt assurance and certainty that all is well. Whatever situation you're in, 
that Jesus has that in his hand. He's in control of that situation. You can be confident in it. You can rely on it. You can trust in it. One of the things that I really love about taking a funeral is that there's, there's a little phrase you can say in the committal where you say that that person is being entrusted to Jesus in the sure and certain hope of resurrection to eternal life. That idea of hope is a sure and certain hope. It's not a wishful thinking. Often we say, oh, oh I hope it's pizza for tea. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about. That's a wish. There is a hope that is certain, that is absolute, that is steadfast. That's the kind of peace that Jesus offers. It's not vague. It's not wishful thinking. It is deep and true and firmly rooted in the truth of the gospel. The peace that Jesus offers is that point where you can stop, where you can feel safe. How important is that in our life? To feel safe, to feel relaxed, to feel calm, to feel secure. There is somewhat of an epidemic in our society of depression and anxiety. I am certain that there is not one person here tonight who hasn't either suffered directly or had someone very close to them have an episode of depression or anxiety. And I wonder whether it's a symptom of our culture or whether it was always so and we're just better at recognising it. I don't suppose that really matters either way. But it is true. And it's debilitating and it's painful. And Christians, despite the truth that I will go on to share in a moment, are not immune to it in any way. In fact, I wonder sometimes if Christians are even more susceptible and at greater risk. The feelings of desolation, of despair, of inadequacy, emptiness, that you've somehow let people down, that you're no good, that you're useless, that you're a burden. Those feelings are real and they hurt. They hurt deep. I couldn't tell you. It's a weekly occasion for me to sit with someone and they tell me that they feel that way. They feel that they're no good, that they're useless, that they're a burden. It is true that anxiety was an issue in Jesus' time. We're going to, in a moment, read a passage that, that just openly talks about that. But if you were a pagan in those times, you never knew which God was going to randomly and arbitrarily be offended by your behaviour. Something bad could be coming your way, could be right around the corner for you. Tragedy could be coming your way and you wouldn't know what was going to hit you next. But whilst with God revealed to us in the person of Jesus, there was no guarantee against suffering. There was a certainty, there is a certainty in following Jesus and knowing that God. There is a certainty that God will answer your prayers. There is a certainty and a security that God is ultimately in control. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious. Present that stuff to God. And the peace of God, which is more than we can even get our heads around, 
will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, God cares about every single aspect of your life. Even stuff that you might think is trivial. Really, who cares whether you get a parking space when there's so much suffering in the world? But the truth is that God does care. He cares about you and he cares about every situation that you find yourself in. Because if it matters to you, it matters to God. Taking every situation, there are no exceptions here, taking every situation to God in prayer will bring about God's peace. Not a kind of hands-off lack of concern, but a deep peace in the middle of life's storms, in the middle of life's difficulties and challenges and problems. That is God's promise to you. Just that. Take every situation to him and in return you will find peace. Now it's not that God says yes to every prayer that we pray. That is not the promise here. There is this tension, I think, that Christians experience over whether God answers our prayers. And I would say that God always answers our prayers. Without exception, God answers our prayers. It's just not always the answer that we want to hear. God answers our prayers with a yes or a no. Or more often than not, I think the answer is not yet. Wait, be patient. That might, not, that might not be what we want to hear, but those are still valid answers. Yes, no, not yet. But what God does, what God always does, when we come to him in that relationship, when we come to him in prayer, when we bring our burdens towards him, when we bring our situations towards him, is that God reassures Because when we're in relationship with him, when we're talking to him, when we're bringing our prayers to him, it gives us a deep sense of peace and comfort. Because praying, drawing into that intimate relationship with him, brings us closer to him. And it lets us know that he has this. He has this situation. We are reminded that God wants the best for us. That he has a plan for our life. We are reminded that God loves us. The accuser, you see, the liar, the Satan, he shouts at us. He shouts thoughts that disturb us, lies that knock us down, lies that put us off balance. They are challenging and they are designed to upset and disarm us. It's like a court scene in a movie. You've all seen those films where the prosecutor is questioning the defendant and they are harsh, they are brusque. They accuse, and the person being questioned gets upset, they feel trapped, they feel defensive. God in his peace is exactly the opposite. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds, because God whispers to you that he loves you. God gets in close. God protects you and reassures and comforts and consoles. I hope we've all felt that at some time in our lives. That certainty, that absolute compassion and comfort of God. Even then in the midst of the most frightening storm, in the the middle of the most challenging situation, God provides peace and calm 
a healing balm for our anxieties and a soft and reassuring whisper of his love. Now there is a, a difficulty, there is a problem sometimes that we have believing that when you lack peace, when you are depressed, when you feel that anxiety. And the problem is when you're in that place, when you are struggling, you don't always feel it. It's easy for me to stand here and say it, and you might even know that it's true, but you still feel lost and empty. Imagine this though. Imagine you've been training to run a race. A race that you're scheduled to run, you're prepared for it. You're ready, you're capable, you've practiced, you're fully prepared. And then two days before the race is due, you get the flu and it floors you. You can't even think about completing the run. It's just impossible. Everything about you was ready and prepared. You are no different. You're the same athlete who was fit and well and ready and prepared to run, but you got sick. And this week, at this time, you're just not able to perform the way you know you can. The truth is, you're still a runner, but you don't feel up to it this week. You don't feel well enough, and you can't compete in the race. Now, that is not your fault. That is, nobody's going to blame you for that. It's not a weakness on your part. It doesn't change who you are. And no one would blame you. No one would say that you're not a runner. No one would doubt what you've achieved. No one would doubt what you are capable of. Andy Murray, who hasn't competed in tennis at the level that he was at three or four years ago when he was winning Wimbledon and he was winning Olympic gold medals, he's not played for, for at that level for a couple of years now. Would you say he's not a tennis player? Of course he is. He's always going to be a tennis player. In fact, he'll be a tennis player forever. It's the same for you when you don't feel like you can receive that peace from God. You feel far from him. You feel removed you feel there's a barrier. You feel desolation. Your anxiety seems to dominate your experience. That does not mean that God has stopped loving you. That does not mean you are no longer a Christian. It doesn't mean that your prayers are unanswered. Even if you find it a real challenge to pray, to come before God and, and speak to him in any kind of structured way, do you know, it doesn't matter. That doesn't stop you being a Christian either. And it doesn't stop God from loving you either. Because God knows your heart. God knows you intimately. He knows what's in your heart. And he still whispers in your ear, I love you. I love you. You can still be assured. You can still find a deep peace in my love and care and mercy towards you. And he whispers, I will protect you. Guard your heart even more than you can understand. Because this is beyond what we feel in the moment. It's beyond even what we can comprehend according to what Paul says. But we can know as fact what we cannot experience in that moment. See, you don't always feel truths, but you can know them in your brain. God offers that peace. The peace of certainty, of safety, of reassurance. And he offers it to you today. And he offers it to you every day. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the peace that you offer. 
when we come to you and we lay our burdens on you, when we bring our anxieties and our struggles, our sufferings, our doubts, our weaknesses, when we bring the hard things that we face to you, I thank you, Father God, that you hear us, that you whisper, I love you. I thank you, Father God, that you give us a deep peace that transcends our understanding. And I pray, Father God, that that peace would reign in the lives and experiences of those here tonight, of those who come to you, of those who cast their burdens on you, of those who cry out to you, even of those who can't put that into words, who feel so empty and desolate, who feel as if they are beyond your reach. Father God, I pray that you would break through and that they would know a peace. And I pray that they would hear you whisper, I love you. I thank you, Father, that it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on how clever we are, how smart we are, how together we are. It doesn't depend on how much of our life is sorted out. It depends on you. Father, I pray that we would take those steps to bring our sufferings and our troubles and our worries and our anxieties to you. And I pray, Father God, that you would replace them with an unknowable peace, with a peace that brings us certainty and assurance, a peace that draws us into your loving presence. In Jesus' name, amen.